This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi there, this is Seth Abramovich, senior writer at The Hollywood Reporter. Welcome back to another edition of It Happened in Hollywood. This week, we're going to relive the making of Martin Scorsese's ninth film. All that and more on this week's episode of It Happened in Hollywood. Martin Scorsese and it conjures up one of the greatest directors to ever live. But it's easy to forget that he had some struggling periods. After he made Raging Bull in 1980, which was a huge critical success and a commercial success, he made The King of Comedy, which was an unusual genre for him. Dark comedy about fan obsession and fame. And um, it was a critical hit, but a huge bomb at the box office. After that, he turned to making his dream project ever since he was a child, the story of Jesus Christ, in an adaptation called The Last Temptation of Christ. He was all set to start shooting in 83 in Israel. Uh, Aidan Quinn, who you might remember from Desperately Seeking Susan, was going to play Jesus Christ. But the studio started to get cold feet as his budget started to rise and religious groups started to send protest letters. And so... He switched gears and he found a lean, scrappy, low-budget script that he thought he could turn into something cool. That was After Hours. And like The King of Comedy, it was set in New York. It's another black comedy, this one all almost real-time, or it is real-time, actually, following this guy played by Griffin Dunn. His name is Paul Hackett in the film who's just this hapless data entry guy who finds himself through a series of events. He loses all his money out a window of a cab and he's stranded in Soho. Now, now we think of Soho as sort of an upscale shopping mall, but back then it was still a kind of dangerous, edgy uh, place with a lot of artist lofts where, you know, artists were and, you know, edgy, quirky, weird kind of characters. And so he, so the film kind of, you know, follows him as he tries to get out of this situation and find his way home. I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. She said to come on over. On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. Then I got to know this girl and I didn't really get along with her that well. It didn't really work out, so I left. So I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender, a really nice guy who wanted to lend me the money. He was just about to give me the money when all of a sudden his phone rang. His girlfriend killed herself tonight. Huh? Is that a coincidence? No, because the same girl who I came downtown to see was dead too. That's because they're the same person. There was this girl who was there who witnessed the whole thing who let me use her phone. So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to leave, you know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? We have Griffin Dunn this week, who's going to walk us through the making of this wonderful, wonderful film. If you've never seen it, it's a real treat. And um, Griffin is such a fascinating guy to me. I mean, first of all, uh, his family is is really impressive. His father was Dominic Dunn, who is probably most famous for covering a lot of sensational trials for Vanity Fair, including the O.J. Simpson trial. And his aunt is actually Joan Didion, the late great writer and screenwriter, 
who together with his uncle John Gregory Dunn wrote the screenplay for Barbara Streisand's version of The Way We Were. But Griffin followed his own inspiration and became an actor, and uh, he had some big success at a young age, uh, first in American Werewolf in London, where he played the friend who becomes a victim and then comes reappearing to the star as a kind of chopped up (laughs) from beyond the grave kind of character. Um, And it was one of the first times that horror and comedy were merged to great effect. And then with this one. So enough preamble. Let's get to Griffin and he'll tell us how After Hours, Martin Scorsese's ninth film, came to be. Griffin Dunn, welcome to It Happened in Hollywood. Thank you. Good to be here. This is a real thrill for me, I have to say. I'm I'm a huge fan of yours. So thank you. We're humbled to have you here today. You know, two of your films made the biggest impression on me as a youth. One, of course, being uh, American Werewolf in London. And the other being the one that I want to talk about today, uh, which is After Hours. Both of them very kind of almost uh, funny, nightmarish, dreamlike movies. So let's get right to it. Um, first, I want to uh, talk about a bit about your your background. You come from uh, an illustrious family. Your father is the famous writer Dominic Dunn, who chronicled the OJ trial, amongst other uh, famous trials and crimes for the Vanity Fair. And uh, so what could you tell us about your dad that we might not know? Well, uh, you know, he was a fascinating character. Um, you know, his... Uh, and 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 a very unusual for a journalist. There's no other journalist like him because, you know, the first uh, three quarters of his life, he didn't start writing until he was in his 50s, had been spent in Hollywood. He was a very social guy, um, uh, you know, gave a lot of parties, very, very famous people, the best directors and, and, and movie stars of the, in the early 60s, uh, you know, came to his parties. And he kind of imploded um, and, uh, you know, became um, unemployable, you know, through a lot of sort of self-destructive behavior and uh, and really rose from the ashes by finding his voice as a writer. And the reason he was so unique as a journalist is that from all those years in Hollywood, they all paid off because he had incredible contacts, not just in Hollywood, but in New York and his past. He every murder trial he wrote about, he either knew the killer or the victim or the victim's <laughs> family. So each each one, he had a very strong personal connection and sources that other uh, reporters could get nowhere near. What was he doing in L.A.? What was his, his living? Well, it was very interesting because he was a television producer. He was uh, um, vice president of Four Star Productions, which was a television um, studio formed by Charles Boyer, um, uh, David Niven, uh, Robert Walker, and I'm forgetting, uh, Robert Coote. And these, these they were doing a Chaplin, uh, kind of starting their own, um, the Chaplin Pickford kind of a thing, only for television. And they did kind of classy shows. But what was unusual was that the people he entertained and the ones that uh, – he knew in his social circuit, they were all movie people. They were all, you know, Billy Wilders and William Wellman and Willie Wyler. And, you know, uh, uh, and no one could quite figure out what's it. Imagine how snotty movie people were about TV then. Um, (laughs) So it was sort of like, what, what the hell is a, a, a TV guy? How does he know all these people? But he, that's, that's what he did. And then he, uh, four star, uh, ran out of business, uh, you know, ran out of, uh, just went bankrupt. And uh, he became a film producer. He produced Boys in the Band, the the movie that Billy Freakin did, and Panic in Needle Park, Jerry Schatzberg, and then um, and played as it lays that uh, uh, my aunt, uh, Joan Didion, wrote the novel for, and she and her husband, John Gregory Dunn, wrote the script. And then a final movie was Ash Wednesday, which was such a colossal disaster that pretty much ended his his uh, producing career. Um, and so you mentioned Joan Didion and you made that incredible documentary in which you're interviewing her, one of the great literary figures in American history. So that was your aunt. You grew up with her as just uh, as Aunt Joan, I guess. Aunt Joan. Aunt Joan and Uncle John. Um, 
and, and they and if they as my father was part of old Hollywood um, they really emerged in new Hollywood um, with you know the filmmakers of the 70s uh, that that uh, they worked for and and hung out with you know they they uh, collaborated on um, a star is born with uh, Barbara Streisand that's a screenplay didn't they exactly exactly and so um, your father, you know, his his life's course changed with the, the tragedy of your sister, Dominique, who was uh, in Poltergeist and was a very promising actress. And she was very tragically killed by her ex-boyfriend. Um, and so that turned him on his course of, of uh, sort of crusading for, for victims' rights. Is that correct? Quite right. Quite right. Um, that's what, uh, you know, he went into it not knowing anything about murder trials. And, uh, you know, violence had never touched his life. And you know, and he sort of found his calling, recognizing just how um, women in particular are victimized in the courtroom. They're the ones who are put on trial. Um, and he saw that, we all saw that firsthand. So so that sort of gave voice to um, his, his, his writing and the kind of, kind of trials that he wanted to follow. Amazing. So uh, within this illustrious uh, family is born a, a young man uh, named Griffin. <laughs> and so you, you, uh, at what point did you realize you wanted to be an actor? I was a dead set against being an actor and not having anything to do with Hollywood. I wanted to be a journalist. Uh, I wanted to be a writer, journalist. Um, and then I uh, got talked into um, auditioning for a, a play called Zoo Story, Edward Albee, when I was in high school. Mm. And uh, it's a two-man part, and I played a guy named Jerry. And uh, it was an incredible part, and then I just decided I wanted to be an actor. And and um, I moved to New York and did just that. So you grew up here in L.A., and then you, and then you moved to New York. Correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got myself kicked out of high school. And uh, uh, so I went to New York a little earlier than I, most people did. <laughs> what got you kicked out of high school? <laughs> Pot. Pot. And it was, the school was in Colorado, which was the very first state to legalize pot. So make of that what you will. Now they sell pot in the cafeterias of the high schools you in Colorado. <laughs> so, so you moved to, to New York and um, you start getting parts out there and no, um, no, it was really quite, quite difficult. I was, um, I, I was dyslexic and, and had a very hard time auditioning, uh, you know, showing up, reading off the page, new material. But I had uh, two very close friends, uh, Amy Robinson and Mark Metcalf. Well, all three of us were pretty much out of work actors, except Mark got cast in, um, uh, uh, Animal House, and he used that money so we could option a book called Chilly Scenes of Winter that the three of us produced, and the plan was all three of us would be starring in the movie, but that did not work out. But I did have a small part in the movie that got the biggest laugh in the movie, the, in Chilly Scenes of Winter. And and that, by producing a movie and giving myself a part, kind of kicked off my acting and, and led to, uh, uh, you know, uh, American Werewolf in London eventually. Wow. Okay. So, and American World of London had to have been huge for you, no? It, it was indeed. I, it was it was an unusual thing for me. I mean, it was my first starring part, but I was also continuing producing movies too. Um, so uh, I was uh, I was uh, you know kind of a struggling actor and a oddly more successful producer. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I was twenty three and twenty four. But I went in to meet John Landis, the director, and he. we talked for about maybe 10 minutes. And there were other people waiting outside. And he didn't have me read anything. I didn't audition. And he went, oh, nice to meet you. And, you know, off I went. And uh, about an hour or so later, the phone rang. And he said, uh, you're in your apartment. I want you to stay there. I'm sending a guard with the script, and I want you to read it right away. And he's standing outside and then hand the script to the guard in the hallway. Ding dong. I sit down. I read this script. I'm laughing out loud. He doesn't say anything about it. 
Oh, the only thing he asked me in the um, our 10 minute conversation was, am I claustrophobic? And so I was waiting for a big elevator drama or, you know, something. And <laughs> you didn't even know it was about werewolves. I had no idea. He didn't tell me a thing. <laughs> and all I knew was um, it was Jack and David. And uh, one was the werewolf. The other was the dead guy. And he right. didn't tell me which part. And I just just prayed to God. He meant the dead guy. <laughs> um, I wanted that part much more than the werewolf. And, uh, you know, I don't know what it was. He just hired me. Um, and the claustrophobic business was that I had to wear a mold over my face, uh, plaster that would be, you know, it, it would take at least a half hour to harden. And I would, my life supply of air would be through two straws through my nose. And, and it was a little unsettling. Um, but it wouldn't have kept me from, you know, getting the part. Yeah, a total paradigm shifting movie that in, infused uh, comedy and uh, anticipated, uh, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller and all those amazing special effects and um, and and definitely horrifying. I remember being totally horrified as a kid by it. But also uh, your great uh, your friendship on screen and 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 you being this every every student, every man, I think I think that's what he saw in you, which the uh, same thing goes uh, for after hours. You're, you are the ultimate every man in that film. Mm -hmm. Were you aware that uh, that was your selling point? I, I, I wouldn't have thought of myself as that because you know i didn't have a very much of an up every man upbringing right but uh, but um but i i knew i had a sense of humor and um i think that uh i recognized that one of my strengths was um my reactions to things um particularly mm -hmm. absurd things or scary things i think that was my selling point i always wanted to do comedy you know that's that's uh, my favorite genre. And your reactions in After Hours are just sublime. I just rewatched it. It's Thank it's you. your film, and it is just so quietly funny. It doesn't push too hard, and it's all in, in how you're reacting to the insanity unfolding around you uh, all night. But um, let's talk about now uh, After Hours. So this begins um, at Columbia University? It does indeed. It... it um uh, Joe Minion, who wrote this brilliant screenplay, it was his homework for, uh, it was basically his thesis for, at film school at Columbia. And uh, uh, he was the assistant uh, to a wonderful Serb director named uh, Dujan Makaveev. And Dujan brought him to Sundance uh, while they were in the Sundance lab that happens over the summer. And my partner, by this time, we made two movies, uh, Amy Robinson. Um, Dujan said, there's this, uh, this lovely boy has this very funny script you should read, which he read and called me up immediately and said, this is the greatest part in the world for you. This, you're going to love this script. And so she sent it to me, and um, I, I, I couldn't believe what I was reading, the anxiety, the I had panic attacks. I had to read it <laughs> standing up. And I turned the, the pages with my big toe um, and go, oh, my God. Oh, no. Oh, no. And um, so, yes, we got it immediately, you know, uh, got the option immediately and went about putting it together. Speaking of claustrophobia, you, of course, end in uh, a papier-mâché cast. How about that? <laughs> so, yeah. The original end of the movie uh, was me drive. Uh, Cheech and Chong driving me off in the back without, without getting out, without the plaster falling out. And the movie, uh, when it tested, um, that was the one complaint. They said, what, what, why can't that boy get out? This is just terrible. We, this shouldn't happen. And <laughs> it made people leave feeling very claustrophobic. So, uh, you know, Marty showed it to, uh, you know, Steven Spielberg and De Palma and, uh, I think Schrader and, you know, got, you know, a bunch of losers who have, you know, <laughs> tiny opinions. And, uh, and uh, you know, to be like, how do, you, how do you think this movie should end? And we had really elaborate endings. David Geffen was the financier. Um, one of the endings 
that we loved was I would end up climbing out of the lady in the in the in the very end of the movie, uh, mm-hmm. the actress. Um, that I would climb out of her vagina um, covered in uh, ambiotic fluid uh, <laughs> and be left on the street and the and the West Side Highway. So all the action takes place in her uterus or what do we do? We would have done a whole birth canal thing. I don't know. It was, it was, we, we never got that far. And I pitched it to David Geffen who uh, had Geffen films and finance it. And he took a beat and went, are you all out of your minds? <laughs> you, that's the craziest, worst idea I ever heard. Come up with another one. <laughs> What did the script have as the ending? I think he was driving off in the. I think it was what 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 we shot. Just not. We didn't have the the um, you know the capper of the doors opening and then the plaster falling and you know I break out and then walk into the uh, office for another day of work. For another day of work, yeah. And 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 breaking out of the plaster and everything. I guess that was sort of coming out of the womb at the end of the day. After all. <laughs> Everything about this movie is unusual, including the fact that Martin Scorsese is the director. I mean, it's one of his rare, you know, pure comedies. It doesn't really sit alongside what you you typically associate with a, a Scorsese film. So I understand you took this first to a, a promising emerging director. Could you tell a bit about that before Scorsese? Yes. Well, first we did go to Scorsese. Um and Amy Robinson was uh, Teresa in Mean Streets. So she she knew Marty. And we also had the same lawyer, a guy named Jay Julian, who's hilarious in King of Comedy. Um, he plays Jerry Lewis's lawyer. And, and I had met Marty when I was 17 years old. And an agent sent me in to meet him to play the boy in Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And who was played by an 11 year old and Marty opened up the door, <laughs> saw this teenager standing in front of him. And what do you, what, yes. Can I help you? I went, I'm here about your movie. He went, you're kidding. Jesus, <laughs> you're way too old. Like, come on in anyway. And we talked for like a half hour. I don't know what possessed him to do that, but that was my, that was my first meeting with him. And then <laughs> So anyway, he was he was about to start shooting Last Temptation uh, of Christ with Aidan Quinn. So he was unavailable. Amy and I go to see uh, a movie. I forget what the movie was, but I remember what showed before it was this just a, a Frankenweenie movie that was a black and white. So brilliant. So brilliant. And we went, who is that guy? And we found out he's an animator at uh, the Disney lot. Uh, we tracked him down. We met him for lunch. Tim Burton, we're talking about here. He, he'd read the script beforehand. We got got it to him. And we meet, I think we're in like the Disney cafeteria or something. And he had a short sleeve shirt and those pen sets in the top pocket and with the ink bleeding all over the pocket. And, you know, he was um, uh, a nerd. There's no other way to put it. And But brilliant. You could just tell. His ideas were like, oh, my God. And uh, so we we began um, starting to put it together with him and uh, Terry Gar. I was very close with, and uh, uh, so we cast her as the beehive hairdo. And that was like as far as we got. We didn't really even have the money together. Um, we had it in like little pieces and stuff. And uh, Marty's film gets canceled. Um, Last Temptation, um, King. For any any number of reasons, but he he was entering a dark period because King of Comedy had not done well. I guess King, uh, Last Temptation was was going to be much more expensive than the studio thought, so they canceled production. And on the flight back from Casablanca, uh, Marty has a pile of scripts. We're at the top of the pile, and he lands and says, "Hey, what's the deal with this script you sent me? I really like it." I did. Uh, I'll do it. Wow. And Amy and I, well, rather than jump up and down, we thought, oh, oh no. Oh, no. We really liked him. So we tell Tim, though, nonetheless. 
We say, listen, <laughs> funniest thing happened. Uh, you remember we told you we gave it to Martin Scorsese? Oh, yes, of course. Well, <laughs> he wants to do it. I mean, anyway, never mind. What were we talking about? And <laughs> and, and Tim goes. We'd much wait, rather wait. you. Yeah, yeah. Well, Tim goes, wait, 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 back up. Are you saying that Mr. Scorsese wants to make this movie? And we said, yeah, but, you know, I mean, I'm sorry. I have to gracefully decline going any further with this. I'm not going to stand in the way of, of whatever Mr. Scorsese wants to do. And hmm. it was a very gracious thing to do. And we knew that this guy was going to be fine. Um <laughs> And, uh, you know, the next one, next movie, his first movie was uh, Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Mm -hmm. And he was off to the races. Similar kind of tone, I would say. You could put them on the same shelf at the video store. Um, yeah, I mean, but but Tim's ideas were much more, it was much, it was a much spookier after hours. I mean, he literally did sets and showed us designs and dark rooms that I'd be walking through with spider webs in the corners and stuff like that. Uh, it was all, it was a Tim Burton movie for sure. Oh, that I would have loved to have seen that. I'm sure we all would, but, <laughs> yeah. um, Scorsese isn't uh, exactly chop liver and, um, yeah, we did. Okay. A very complex film to make, even though deceptively it seems kind of straightforward and simple, but I, but it's, uh, it would take some master filmmaker to make something, uh, look so effortless. Um, so w was it a was it a technically challenging shoot? Well, it was the I think the lowest budgeted movie Marty had made certainly since Mean Streets, um, and that was you know the confines of the uh, uh, of making the movie. You know, as he was in a bit of a director's jail, and he was important to him to prove that he could proved to others that he could uh, make a picture for a price. And uh, so we, there was a, a, a union. We couldn't even afford an IA union. Um, there was a, 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 for smaller movies, there was a, a union then called NABIT. Um, and we, um, we crewed up out of that, but um, out of that crew, well, one of the people we, we turned Marty on to was who shot our, the uh, Amy said our previous movie, Baby It's You, that John Sales directed, was Michael Ballhouse. That was it. That was Michael's first movie in America, having worked with Fastbender so many years. And so we introduced them, and we know that was a long um, collaboration. And uh, and out of Nabit came the costume designer, and I still got a little uh, COVID brain, so forgive me. I can't. <laughs> I'm just blanking on her name. Uh, but anyway, they went on to do like five movies afterwards. He did everything from the Edith Wharton to the uh, movie he did to Age of Innocence. Uh, Rita is her first name, by the way. Anyway, so he met he met and, and established relations with, with, with people through this movie that he went on to work with on, on many other movies. But uh, he also um, shotlisted the entire movie before we shot it. And there would be um, uh, drawings of what the shots would be on the back of every call page. Uh, so we are on the call sheet. So um, the crew always knew what they were going to be shooting. They knew exactly what equipment to have on the truck. They knew they didn't even need to be told what's, what what uh, a shot to set up for next. So it was very, very smooth, even though the con the camera work was quite complicated. There were tracks all over the place. Um, the camera hmm. never stopped moving. And uh, if I wasn't uh, running down the street, uh, I was running down hallways and around corners. And there was only one Steadicam shot, the final shot in the movie. All the rest was all on tracks. Um, so I would be running, or uh, and I'd have to always step over the tracks and then round back around. So it was kind of a bit of a ballet act for me as well. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What about that shot when Linda Fiorentino throws the keys down to you? Are you Paul? Yeah. You're a cat. That shot, my, my cousin, Tony Dunn, was the key grip on the, on the movie. And uh, he had designed, um, to get that shot, he had designed a, the, the camera to be held by bungee cords. And it would literally, they dropped it out the, out the window from that actual thing. And it would come toward me holding up. And the idea was it was, it was going to bounce, get very close to my face, and then, and then fly back up. <laughs> um, they actually went ahead with this. I stood under the bungee cord. Thank God the bungee cord broke uh, as it hit before it could hit my face and landed on the on the uh, pavement. And people went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. What? What? You know, my cousin almost had me killed. Um, (laughs) And that ended up being the very last shot. We reshot it. The very last shot. And as I said, that we were on a tight budget. We thought we couldn't afford a crane. Well, we went and got a crane and all we did was put the camera up and then pull the crane down toward my face. And then the shot was over in five minutes. So the first camera was destroyed. The one that hit the ground. No, it didn't actually. No, it, we, we, no, <laughs> it, 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 it managed to tape it back together or whatever. Uh, we ended up, we still used it. I could just imagine the whole crew terrified the camera, save the camera. And you're lying next to it. Yeah, well, that's exactly. <laughs> I would have had a huge hole in, in my forehead. <laughs> so, um, I understand that, uh, M- Marty, uh, gave you some, uh, uh, you know, uh, unorthodox instructions, uh, leading into making this. What were those? I know where you're going. He said, he said, can you, I want you to not, it was a six week shoot. He goes, I want you to not have sex from, you know, the, a week before shooting until the movie is finished. Can you do that? And I went, uh, well, I don't know that I can do it, but why? He goes, cause I want to have that look in your eyes and I need you to like to, to, I want to, I want to see you thinking about sex. And uh, he didn't even ask Jesus not to have sex. Uh, I, know. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't get a pass. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that would be the one to ask. Um, <laughs> so I honored his wishes. Although to his credit, you do have that hungry look in your eye. Yeah, no, it was good. It was a very good idea. And um, <laughs> a dear friend from out of town came to stay with me over the weekend toward the last week of shooting. And we slip and fell and had sex. And, uh, <laughs> but I go, I go to the, um, I go to the set. I'm, we're picking up the scene that we, we wrapped for on Friday of me massaging Linda's, uh, shoulders. And I'm, you know, and, you know, they were coming back on, on, on my angle. So we're just doing it. And, and now I'm doing it like, I've massaged a thousand girls and they all love this. I'm very, very, I'm like a real pro at this. And Marty goes, cut, cut. Griffin, come here. Did you get laid? <laughs> and I, I dropped to my knees. I went, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He goes, you just fucked up the whole fucking scene. And, um, and the fear of having ruined the scene uh, brought the fear back in my eyes and <laughs> I was fine from then on. It's acting, my dear boy, acting. <laughs> acting, acting, it's, uh, it's an alleviated Dustin. 
Um, well, that's great. And then he didn't he also ask you to be sleep deprived? Uh, he didn't need to ask that. That was, uh, you know, um, it was all nights. I had uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the gaffers came and, and blacked out all my windows. And so because we would, you know, breakfast for dinner, dinner for breakfast, our sleep was all completely screwed up. But I, I, I think we were all sleep deprived. And so you're shooting actually in the after hours, hours of uh, of Soho, New York. Now this is not the Soho that people might think of now. That's full of uh, shopping, you know, high end shopping stores and things. Yeah, this yeah. is it was still uh, an artist colony at that point, right? And maybe a little dangerous. Very much so. Very much so. And very very quiet. Uh, you know, you just hear the sounds of little rat paws on cobblestones uh at night um <laughs> a quaint and uh you would you know there was a um it was very very quiet except for when we were shooting and there was a a scene in the movie where i dropped to my knees and screamed what do you want from me i'm just a word processor for christ's sakes what do you want from me what have i done we had to do the you know scene over and over and and there's a loft just sort of overlooking us and one of these enormous loft windows comes flying up and a, a woman artist is uh holding a, a a cigarette and she screams out the window shut the fuck up just shut up and without missing a beat marty goes tell that woman to put out a cigarette <laughs> so new york is certainly a place where you know outdoor shooting is complicated and, and gathers crowds were, were, were people curious about what you guys were making the only the only crowd we attracted we're homeless to the craft service table. Um, <laughs> we, we had quite a, uh, and, and we, you know, we gave them food. And so they kept coming back, you know. Um, uh, but there was really no, no crowd at all, except for the people we were keeping up at night screaming at us. You know, I was walking by, um, it's very different. I don't live that far from there now. And every now and then I'll see a landmark from the movie. And, I've often wondered, I, I've never been quite sure until about a couple of years ago, which was the building where the keys dropped down, because um, there's so many other lofts that look just like it. And I'm walking there, walking down the street, and I see someone taking, uh, with a video camera, pointing up at this loft building, and then swishing it down, and then swishing it up. And I go, oh my God, that's the building. <laughs> and... Then I look at the photographer, and it's Bennett Miller. I go, Bennett? He goes, oh, my God, this is, the, you're, I, this is what I'm doing right now. I'm doing the shot, and here you walk along. You know, this stuff happens to me all the time. Wow. <laughs> so did he have you pose? Yes, he did. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, so some amazing, uh, you know, supporting roles in the, in the film. First of all, as you mentioned, Terry Garr, who was probably the biggest star in the film. She had already done, uh, you know, a lot of classic turns, Tootsie and, and Young Frankenstein. And, um, Young she, Frankenstein, she, yeah. she plays, uh, a, a beehive, uh, waitress, kind of a lonely heart. I don't have to take that kind of shit, you know? I mean, what is it with people today? You can't say anything without getting some kind of a smart answer. You just have to be so goddamn careful about everything you say. You think I don't notice? I know what's going on. I overhear the customers at the Xerox shop when they're making fun of me. I didn't mean anything by that. I mean, it was, it was raining outside, and I invited you to come into my home. I didn't have to do that, now did I? Now, first of all, you're not stupid. Look, I have trouble figuring out the tax on checks. So what? I mean, 8% is a bitch. So I make a few mistakes. So I make a few mistakes. So silly. Call your lawyers. Great part for her. And then uh, Rosanna Arquette, who I, I don't know if, if this was first or, or Desperately Seeking Susan. We're doing that one this season as well. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that was unfortunate that um, we took so long to cut because we shot it before Desperately Seeking Susan. And 
uh, a lot of the critics thought we were imitating Desperately Seeking Susan, the real stupid critics. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but I had actually uh, worked with Rosanna twice before. We were uh, one of my very... Or, uh, an early acting job was we were both in Poland during the shipyard strikes and the country went into martial law to film a TV movie called The Wall. And then afterwards she played, um, she was the star of Baby It's You, the John Sayles movie that Amy and I produced. We didn't need to push her to Marty because Marty and Jay Cox, who wrote Last Temptation, when they were in the desert in pre-production, not knowing their film would, would be canceled, um, they would look up at around a campfire and look at the ashes going in the, in the, in the sky and they would sing Rosanna in the highest. And they really loved Rosanna Arquette. And that was like their little joke, like Rosanna, Rosanna in the highest. And then the Toto song came out, Rosanna. So when he brought up, um, her to play the part, we went, Oh, well, yeah, perfect. Hmm, I knew there was something special about you. I hope you don't have to get up early tomorrow or anything. Because I think you're somebody I can really talk to. And tonight I feel like... I feel like I'm going to let loose or something. I feel like... I feel like something incredible is really going to happen here. <laughs> I feel so excited and I don't know why. I feel it. <laughs> I'm glad you came. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> And just the one-two of this and uh, Desperately Seeking Susan just established her as the it girl of uh, kind of cool, you know, New York mid-80s. Uh, I mean, there was no there was no prettier or cooler chick than Rosanna Arquette. Without a doubt. We, we, we've, we've done, uh, we just finished our seventh movie together. Uh, we were a movie I shot in Tulum and then uh, part of it in New York, and she and I, played a, uh, a married couple going through a divorce with fully grown children. Um, and when we met, we were children. Um, so it's, it, it, it's been a nice long run working with her. And I couldn't help but notice you mentioned John Sales before, another guest this season. Uh, I oh, guess great. This, is, this is my sweet spot. Uh, we're going to be doing uh, The Brother from Another Planet, another great 80s uh, indie film. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite genres is, is that New York indies of the 80s. Um, so now there's a scene in the bar. John Hurd, another great cameo or smaller part, playing the bartender there, where you have... Uh, two leather men uh, making out and playing with each other's nipples. <laughs> I had not remembered that scene. Maybe it didn't affect me quite as much as a kid as it did as an adult, but um, uh, it's a really bold, cool scene. And um, I, I wonder, you know, was that in the script? And, and what was it like filming next to those two amorous fellas? Not only was it in the script, Marty and I auditioned about 50 leather dudes. Um <laughs> who came to, and, and their audition was, okay, you guys make, start making out. And <laughs> I mean, they really, every pairing, they really went at it. Uh, we had a <laughs> lot of choices. Um, and uh, I mean, we literally watched grown men with, uh, you know, uh, uh, leather handled mustaches make out for about four or five hours. Um, that was one of our casting sessions. <laughs> that's why marty's one of the greatest filmmakers of all time he does not cut corners uh, he does not he, he follows every part to his bitter end he researches the shit out of it no that it was truly shocking you you just don't expect to see that certainly in a film from from 1985 or and um yeah uh, it's very bold and cool and but you could also see how uh it, it, it appealed to new york audiences but maybe not to uh outside of the uh, metropolitan centers. 
So you and John Hurd are having a long conversation and then uh, John Hurd finds out uh, over the phone that his girlfriend has uh, committed suicide and that's Rosanna Arquette's character. You're feeling a little sheepish because you feel like you participated in in her downfall. And so you're having this uh, dramatic scene together and making no reference whatsoever to these two guys. That's right, that's right, that's right. It's just in the background, that's right. Yeah, you don't react at all to them, which is so so, uh, (laughs) subversive and cool if you think about it uh it's total incidental and then uh and then of course they they uh stop kissing to uh, offer their condolences <laughs> which is also hilarious <laughs> oh my um, god an amazing an amazing sequence my girlfriend just killed herself a little while ago took some sleeping pills jesus christ oh no he uh my fault. God. Marcy. 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 I don't know what to say. I just. I don't know what to say. Can you say? After all, it wasn't your fault. What could I say? This what what is it about this film? To me, it it captures. You know, I have these dreams all the time where I they're anxiety dreams. I can never quite complete a task or get somewhere, or it, it, nothing ever like works out. And that's what this film is. It's 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 an hour and a half of that, but it's just uh, I don't know. It's become sort of a touchstone when you say, oh, and after hours. Uh, you know exactly now what people are talking about. Yeah. And in fact, uh, Ted Lasso did a whole episode inspired by it in its second season. I, I, um, I saw it. He told me. You did? Yeah. I think it taps into, I think it just, it, as you said, it taps into these these dreams we had where we get in the wrong car and it's going the wrong and then it runs out of gas and you can't find the keys to your apartment and you have to go to the window, but it's in somebody else's apartment. You know, it's it just... I, I understood this character in this script without without much research. When it came out, yeah, it was it was it was it was good in New York. It was huge in France. It premiered at the uh, in Cannes in competition. I'll, I'll tell you about that. Actually, um, it was at a time when uh, Gaddafi uh, was threatening to. I don't know that he directly threatened the Cannes Film Festival. But it became a sort of a, a competition of the more famous you were, the more likely you were to be killed. So therefore, I'm not going to the Cannes Film Festival this year. And no one went from America, hardly anyone. And, and, and Marty and the cast, they were all freaked out. But I was determined to go. I'd never been to Cannes Film Festival. I didn't really believe Gaddafi. I was on his radar. So I... Uh, so I go to Cannes, and uh, the, the night of the uh, screening, I go to my closet where I had my tuxedo um, dry cleaned. I'm expecting to see it there, and it's not there. I have no tuxedo. There's no nothing. I tell the, the handler my, of, the, of the festival, um, where's my tuxedo? I can't. I can't. I mean, I'm supposed to just get right in the car to take me to the, to the Palais. And they break open the, they go to the dry cleaner and they, they break them open, uh, the, the bars to the dry cleaner, and they get my suit. I push it. I, I, I put it on. They go, my God, you're late, you're late, you're late. And I go with police escort, the car with flags on the front. Um, and I'm the only guy, the, the press had already started, pretty much left. And I'm the only guy to ever run up the red carpet um, to, to, to his own screening. Um, and they were all waiting. I kept everybody waiting. But then the movie got this thunderous applause. And everywhere I went, I was called on the front pages of the paper, I was called the bravest American and um, for daring to show up. And I would walk into, <laughs> um, you know, these restaurants and Gerard Depardieu, people clapped because he was so brave. He's here. And Gerard Depardieu <laughs> got out of his chair and gave me a big hug and kissed me on both cheeks. And it was one of the greatest times I ever had in my life. What what an easy boost. All you have to do is show up to Cannes and, you, and everyone thinks All you're you a hero. Have to. I mean, 
I, the one who took the most shit was uh, Sylvester Stallone. Did canceled going, and they said Griffin <laughs> Dunn is braver than Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Um, well, that's nice to know that it, at least uh, they appreciated the film. It does sort of have a French uh, sensibility to it. Um, and uh, and also reminds me a bit of uh, maybe the, the silent comedians. Uh, there's a Buster Keaton-esque quality to to your mishaps. Uh, As a matter of fact, I, I, I once uh, I thought of Buster Keaton very early in the movie on a walking tracking shot. While I'm walking away and I thought I was just channeling Buster Keaton just in the walk and marty goes uh what's with the walk i went it's, it's buster keaton he goes no no walk like you <laughs> that is too funny um and then so yeah so it wasn't uh, it was a cool hit i remember you know a lot of my cool i learned from my older sisters and i, I remember them be telling me this is the movie you need to see and and so i f understood that it was cool but i don't it didn't totally catch on with the uh, mainstream audiences until it, it, it became a cult hit would you say i'd say so and it it just uh it, it just grew and grew and grew and uh you know i get stopped all the time and this guy stopped me on the street just yesterday going, oh, my God, uh, I, 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 I work for the Safdie brothers and they have a uh, it's their favorite movie. And I, I was I was just about to track you down. You're supposed to, they want to know if you will come in um, and, uh, you know, and, and talk to them um, and because they just love that movie. You know, I mean, it's sort of this. It just builds, you know, the have you the, met them yet? The, the uh, popularity. And I have. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it, they were effusive. They were effusive. When's the last time you and Marty uh, have uh, talked about it or seen it together? Oh God, it's been a very, very long time. Even even the um, Criterion has shown it, but they haven't done the Blu-ray of it yet. Mm -hmm. You know, that's where they would interview and all that kind of stuff, which is right. mysterious. I don't know what that's about. Uh, but no, I mean, there's. I, I haven't been aware of any kind of like, let's, you know, get together and talk about this kind of a thing. Um, you know, we, I, I've certainly seen his movies and seen him at his movies. Uh, but uh, no, it hasn't, that hasn't happened, that kind of thing. Well, it's my dream one day to have it. Uh, and it happened in Hollywood Film Festival. And if we did, I would hope I extend to you a invitation to come and, and greet your, your after hours fan base oh, well thank you the griffin hive <laughs> <laughs> um well this was a real treat uh like i said you you are you have a lifelong fan in me i just love your your acting and and also your directing is, is terrific and um it's a real honor to to uh, get to ask you about this a movie well, that means well, a lot you, to me Seth. i had fun um remembering it and you're in new york now I am in New York. I'm in New York. I'm I'm, I'm shooting a series, uh, HBO series that hasn't started, it hasn't aired yet. It's just begun shooting, called um, the Girls on the Bus. It's about uh, a primary campaign, and I play um, a, a character that's not literally David Carr, but based on David Carr because the the writer who wrote the book and is creating the series, her editor was David Carr, uh, and it's it's a really great part. And I, I'd love to tell you what I'm directing, but I can't. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'll look forward to the girls on the bus. That sounds really good. All right. Thank you, Griffin. All right. Thank you, Seth. This is a guest. Well, thank you very much, Griffin Dunn. Uh, that was really fun. I loved reliving everything about the making of After Hours and getting to speak to you. Uh, you were very generous with your time. So thank you. And um, if you haven't seen After Hours, it's available on Showtime. So definitely watch that if you've never seen it. And for next week, we're going to be doing another 80s New York set comedy. This one with a sci-fi bent. It's called The Brother from Another Planet. And that, I believe, you can watch for free on Tubi, Pluto TV, and the Roku channel. 
I also found a version on YouTube. I don't know if that one's legal, but it was a full version. I think that's how I watched it. So that's from director John Sayles, who's a giant in the American independent film scene. He very generously agreed to uh, stop by. It happened in Hollywood. So please do come back next week, and we will be doing The Brother from Another Planet. And until then, we'll see you in Hollywood. Hollywood. 